Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 292 tonight. We have a very special episode here. Let me just tell you something. Um, two friends of the show, two amazing researchers. This is going to be an amazing, amazing show. And I'm, I'm going to hype it up, put a little pressure on them, make sure they get their thinking caps on. No, this is going to be awesome. Um, we have... Uh, Special guest, Dr. Gregory Little, coming back on tonight. And we also have P.D. Newman back on. Um, both are um, very well-versed in Native American culture and metaphysics, and uh, as well as we're going to get into some compounds. And I aptly named the title of this episode, Mounds and Compounds. So um, that's what we're going to be discussing here tonight, and it's going to be awesome. So before we get started, uh, if you don't know who Dr. Greg is, you can check out all of his books. I mean, he's got a ton of them out there. I don't even know, probably over 20, maybe even over 30. We don't know. Um, maybe even more than that, some people say. It's, it gets lost in translation sometimes. But um, no, but I have the link down to at the bottom. If you go all the way to the bottom, uh, you, you'll see PD's links. But right above that, you'll see Dr. Greg's links to all of his Amazon books or books, I should say, on Amazon. Um, and if you're looking for a book on mounds, he has basically what I would call the best um, the best resource for Native American mounds and earthworks, which is the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Mounds and Earthworks. So go check that out. Hard copy. Um, and yeah, we've had him on to discuss everything from UFOs to Atlantis to Edgar Casey in the past. And you can find all those episodes below. There's a link. Um, now let's move on to PD. PD's been a guest on the show regularly, um, and he is an author as well. Uh, you might have heard of his book, Alchemically Stoned, or his newer one, Angels in Vermilion. Um, and he, I think he even has a new one coming out soon, too. Um, but uh, 
yeah, go check out his links down below as well. Check out his books. Uh, I highly recommend both of their books. I'm not just saying that because they're friends of the show or they've been on a bunch. They're both very, very well researched. And as somebody who likes to um, investigate these mysteries and metaphysics and stuff, I'd say they're probably two of the more, um, I don't know how to put this. Um, I don't, I don't get a sense of BS from anything that they've either of them have done. And, and I can't say that about anybody else in the fringe community. So, um, that's why they're on here and that's why we're going to talk. There's a lot of validity, of validity to a lot of the things that they say. So, um, and one more thing, if you want to support mind escape, click the link tree link down below. Both of these fine gentlemen are in our documentary, which is free on our YouTube channel. Um, we've got a merch store, leave us a nice review, whatever you want to do, but we're going to move on now. So without further ado, welcome on the show, Dr. Greg, and welcome on the show, PD. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Well, let's start off with PD. Um, I reached out to PD cause, and he didn't even know this, I don't <laughs> think, and you can speak to this, but I was watching, uh, one of Joe Rogan's most recent episodes with Brian Marescu, where they were talking about, um, you know, ancient psychedelic use. And they were talking about native Americans and they brought he brought a black drink, which is, um, something that you've discussed a lot. And actually we've discussed it on a, a few of the last episodes that you've been on previous, uh, to this. So, um, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on what black drink is and, uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, black drink is a, <clears throat> it's, it's a drink that was made by different Mississippian groups. And it, it's made from Yaupon Holly, which is the only native source of caffeine in North America. But in the, the woodcuts and art imagery depicting this ritual, you see the men drinking it and vomiting over and over, and they drink it from these, these massive shell cups. And the vomiting led botanists to classify this as uh, Ilex vomitoria because they believed it was an emetic, a purgative. And they do, the natives do or did use it as a purgative um, before going to war and before rites of passage and things. But just you know, I, I do a lot of experimentation with these plants myself. And when I found Yaupon holly first growing out here, I thought, well, I'll try it. You know, I'll see what the effects are. And at no dose did it make me vomit. I mean, I, and we drank tons of it. I got the jitters like I drank too much coffee, but at no point did I feel like I was going to vomit. And this was my first indication that there was something else uh, at work. And in the back of my mind, I, you know, I was naturally thinking about ayahuasca, which is a, a South American tea made from um, NN dimethyltryptamine containing plants and which isn't normally orally active. It can be, but it's not normally. And it's mixed with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which comes from other plants. But in certain regions, it's known as la purga, the purge, because it's known to make you vomit. So I thought, well, it wouldn't it be interesting if they were using other plants along with this. And the more I dug, the more I found out that depending on the setting in which they're drinking this black drink, uh, the, the plant additives change. They're different for different settings. And that that's kind of 
was my first indication that there might be something to this. And then a group of researchers got together um, and did some mass spec uh, analysis of these various black drink vessels that they recovered from Spyro. And it turned out that something like 80% of them tested positive for Datura alkaloids. Um, and that had never been even considered that they were mixing Datura with this black drink. But, uh, but yes, it, it's, 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 a many, it's many things. It's also known as sometimes as the white drink, which seems confusing, but white, it comes from both its purgative aspects, the, the cleanliness part of it, cleaning yourself out, and also they would mix it, um, strain it and mix it and mix it. And, and it would cause this big, thick white froth on top of it. So it could also appear white depending on how much they actually aerated it. But uh, yeah, that's basically what, what black drink is. Before we go any further, we might have a little bit of a, we were talking before you got on and you were mentioning white in a different way, Dr. Greg. Do you? Yeah. According to, there's a, there's a really cool old say old i think it's in the 80s or 70s i can't remember um and i don't see the date not ah, 82 um a great book i know pd knows it by charles hudson hudson called the southeastern indians uh and it has just loads of good uh stories about the use of the black drink and the white center that when i say white i don't mean the color of the drink but the uh, the first Europeans that interacted with uh, natives that were using the substance. Uh, and according to Hudson, he said that the Indian, that the natives did refer to it usually as the white drink. Uh, and, but because it was black, the Europeans called it the black drink. That's mm. Hudson's interpretation. Um, I am not sure that I know that Hudson back at that time, they hadn't done as much research on it. They certainly didn't know Datura was in it um, and a lot of other substances, but they really didn't know what the substance was that caused them to vomit. And there are descriptions in this book of the vomiting where they almost made a contest out of it to where they would project Petey's laughing about this, but they would project it to see who could vomit the most and the furthest. Uh, and they would do this repeatedly. And it was a purification ritual. Uh, and if you've ever done something like that, yeah, it, it, it is a purification ritual. Uh, but he did, of course, find the, the amounts of uh, uh, the caffeine that was involved. Uh, and it's supposedly, it's like 10 times as potent as the caffeine that we typically get within coffee uh so but I don't, I don't recommend people go out and try it that's that's my little spiel on all that but yeah. anyway that that's just a little sideline on it no because that's why you're here where this is... i would i would like to ask him the question about hemp if i can yeah, can go. i go ahead and yeah, ask go that? ahead this uh all right so pete let me make this really clear pd knows far more than I do about the use of substances, far more in the Native American. No, it's true. Uh, I've been to a lot of mounds. I, my, most and that's of my saying work, a lot because Greg studied psychopharmacology. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but still, I don't know anything about the, as much about the Native American use with it. it. It wasn't of interest to me until fairly recent years. So yeah, I've been to loads of mounds. I've written descriptions of the mounds and I've looked into the 
the, his, the so-called history that we know about them and dates and that kind of stuff. I know a bit about the pottery. I, I was never that interested in pottery, but it was actually PD that got me interested in all that. So in, in some of my recent research, uh, and I've got a little uh, replica of a Hopewell pipe here uh, and another one here. I've got a bunch of replicas, but I keep reading online. People are claiming and it's usually on marijuana and hemp sites that uh, they found uh, marijuana and hemp residue in the pipes. And now I've searched literature even recently and looked for any kind of scientific papers where that said that the Native American populations had even used hemp uh, in here as maybe to mix uh, tobacco with or whatever. But I can't find a trace of that. So do you know anything of anything published in the scientific literature where they have found traces of marijuana or hemp in the pipes? <clears throat> Absolutely not. <clears throat> excuse me. Y'all got to excuse me. I'm having some chest issues. I'm just getting over a cold. Um, I've never read anything about cannabis in Native American yeah. culture. Now, there is something um, that's called Indian hemp that grows yeah. everywhere out here. Right. But it's not a cannabinoid. It's not... Uh, unless they're confusing it with that. And you know how diverse the Kenny Kinnick blends can get. They'll put different tribes will put all kinds of plants in there. So I wouldn't put it past some of them to have put Indian hemp in there. And if that's yeah. the reference, we could see where the confusion would come in. But I, I've never seen cannabis use among Excellent. any Native American cultures. Well, that, that, that helps me. That clears it up a bit. E even on Twitter, probably one of my most asked questions the probably the top two or three questions is uh what they smoke in the pipes what was in the pipes and my answer is always primary i always use primarily i say primarily tobacco and mm -hmm. i say that it was that it had it was basically 10 or more times as potent as what we have today yeah uh, and i PD think that or... remains accurate is that correct that's still accurate yep yep aren't you and, and a big promoter uh pro proponent of yeah i was gonna say aren't you a proponent of uh uh rustica which doesn't that have like a way higher nicotine um yeah it can it can have three some sources say as much as nine times as much uh, nicotine in it very potent stuff and um there are a did lot did you say that's an maoi as well the rustica yeah yep. rustica is an maoi that's right so it it, it would be enough to potentiate dimethyltryptamine um but that's that's primarily in the southeast it would have been rustica now there's in the southwest it's still tobacco but it's this it's uh nicotiana obtusifolia which is um it's still potent but not nearly as potent as the rustica and the obtusifolia interesting story um author a man named jamie paul lamb that lives in phoenix arizona I get an opportunity to go out there and visit him and his family about about every year, every other year. And he took me to, um, I think it's called Deer Park Reserve, uh, the petroglyph site. And the petroglyphs, are they occupy one specific area of this, this reserve. Um, but the reserve itself is many acres. And uh, as we were walking underneath almost every petroglyph, I was seeing the same plants and I and there's a railing, so I couldn't see them well enough to know what they were. 
And I jumped over this railing and went and looked at them. And every single one of them were either uh, Datura or Nicotiana obtusifolia, the, the tobacco, under virtually every petroglyph. And we thought, well, it must just grow wild out here. And so we started looking over the reserve and we must have covered 10 or 11 acres and didn't find a single other specimen of either plant anywhere out there. And so I consulted some different botanist friends of mine and asked them, is it possible that these plants have been growing here since these petroglyphs were made? And they said, absolutely, that the seeds fall and they grow in the same spots year after year after year for potentially centuries. So it's a good indication they were using those both together. And in the Southeast, there's a lot of examples of tobacco being used with um, black nightshade. Black nightshade can be confusing because we have three different plants here in America that answer to that name. Um, one of them, <coughs> Solanum nigrum, um, doesn't grow here in the southeast. It only grows in the southwest areas. So we know they weren't using that. If they were, they were getting it um, imported to them somehow. Um, the other one, Solanum americanum, is a new world plant. It was brought over with contact. So it wouldn't have been here previous to contact. The third, however, is native and it grows all over the Southeast and it's Solanum ticanthum. That's spelled with a P, P-T-Y, ticanthum. And um, there are lots of instances where they're finding that used in conjunction with tobacco in various complexes. And in, in association with this, they constantly find the remains of birds. Um, different kinds of birds, usually waterfowl, uh, connected somehow to either the imagery or the pipe itself. And this has led a number of different scholars to propose that it's a clear indication of a, of a shamanic connection, a shamanic flight that's being induced by combining these two plants. Very interesting. While we're on Datura, I might as well bring it up because I did have pictures, which by the way, uh, if anybody's listening just on an audio platform, like, well, Spotify, we have video too. But if you're listening on Apple, there is some images and videos along with, you know, overlaid and what they're saying. I will pull this up right now. This is the pin, the great pinwheel um, uh, art from Pinwheel Cave. Um, and they initially thought it was some sort of you know, spiral galaxy or some sort of cosmological symbol like you would see in other parts of the world. Uh, however, then they found this, which I'll pull that back up. It looks exactly mm. like the top of a Datura flower. Now, they found uh, chewed up Datura quids um, in the pinwheel cave stuffed up in like little holes. And quids are just like little bundles that they chew on. Um and uh, I, was that that's the chumash, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Chumash. And the chumash have a long history of using datura in rites of passage, particularly for young males. So once you reach around age seven to nine, they would give you a big dose of this. And reports vary on why they would do it. Some of them say that it opens them up to the uh, the spiritual plane some but other reports say that it actually gives them a spirit um like a second soul and greg's talked a lot about the two soul model in the native american traditions but it could also be something like a a, a genius or a daemon very much like you would acquire a spirit in, in other ancient cultures but they would give it 
considerably young. And I don't, I think only the shamans, and I, I use the word shaman reluctantly, they wouldn't have used that word, but um, only their holy men would have used it repeatedly throughout their lives for certain purposes. Um, unless I'm mistaken, I believe that the rest of the tribe were only given it, given to them during this young rite of passage. So they were definitely using it outside of just those quids and whatnot. Can I interject a quick question here for, for absolutely? Okay, so uh, and some some things that I'm writing right now, I've uh, read that the word shaman was first used around the late 1600s, like 1690, something like that. That's when the word was coined. So what do you think they did call themselves? Um, it, it, it would change with the group. Um, the, there's a, uh, here in the, the MIDI South, one, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, here, here in the South, the, among the Chickasaw and the Choctaw, I believe they had a, a similar word. Um, it's escaping me right now. It'll, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, the, but it's nothing a, like shaman. The word shaman itself comes from the Tungustic people right. out of Siberia. Right. And right. it was and used that was, by um, outsiders, you know, right. trying to come up with some word that they could use to describe these other practices that looked so similar. And as you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence that shows that some of those practices probably did come in through the north and down around the oh, south yeah. from the from those areas. But yeah, the word, the word itself is Tungustic and uh, I'm, the, the Chickasaw term, it'll come to me in a minute. Go ahead. Okay. The, the, um, the Choctaw had a word that meant one who knows, and it was Nankana. Nankana. Uh, Nankana. Uh, and the re the only reason I know that is because, and you've been to a business that I'm associated with, and behind the business there is a stream in Memphis called Nankana Creek. And mm -hmm. for years, I knew it was an Indian word, but I didn't know what it was. And what it means is one who knows. And I've always, and I, I haven't been able to find out more about that one term, but I suspect that is the word for a shaman in Choctaw. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. The, the, the whole nos, notion of knowing, gnosis, yeah. that shows up um, holy men and initiates of various places. The word used for them is something having to do with the right. He who knows. Oh, it's, it's Alkisi. I think ah, that's okay. Alkisi is the Chickasaw term. And uh, I don't know the, the actual meaning of it, but that's what they call their, their healers slash seers. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, so we were talking about Tatura, Pinwheel Cave. Why do you think uh, scopolamine or scopolamine, people pronounce it differently. Uh, how do you think, why do you think that was such a favorable compound for the Native American? Do you think it's just because it was uh, available, uh, you know, via, you know, Datura is probably one of the more... Um, widely spread i mean throughout the u.s you could I, I would think that you could find it in any state i don't know that for sure but i think it's one of those types of plants where it's found kind of like everywhere i think it's it boils down to it's what works um 
and it's effective every time. Now, it's not predictive every time. Uh, you have to be quite skilled at navigating those territories, have your sea legs to even, in my opinion, be able to approach uh, nightshades and scopolamine. It's very dangerous. It's probably, it's arguably the most dangerous of the, what we would call hallucinogenic plants. But there's, there's mythologies wrapped up around them, you know, all the way down into Mexico and South America. And it's a striking plant, you know, if you, when you see them, the flowers smell amazing. Yeah, there's I just pulled up some, uh, some trumpets. These <laughs> funny, funny story I saw last week um, on like Instagram or TikTok. The, this woman and her friend were at a party and they had some uh, angels trumpets and uh, they were just smelling them and they couldn't figure out why they were getting like so like fucked up like what what's going on you know and then i'm uh, then it's like clear like oh that girl's basically sniffing you know an angel's trumpet she's just getting all that pollen up you know mm -hmm. so um but the flowers like, are, are themselves are lightly intoxicating oh, okay and one of the better ways to use it that's safe is to place a flower or a flowering plant near your bed when you sleep and just smelling it, uh, the effect on on dream recall, lucidity, it's unparalleled. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, again, though, they are dangerous biologically. These are not the same. You know, we talk a lot about tryptamines and phenethylamines and different things on this podcast, different classifications of psychedelic drugs. But as far as... Um, you know, effects on your biology. I think that nightshades are obviously the most dangerous. I mean, maybe there's a more dangerous one you can think of, but I mean, Greg, that's... you've heard of um, tobacco sickness that you can get from harvesting green tobacco. Oh yeah, I had I had an employee that worked for me who grew up on a tobacco farm, and okay. they used to. He said that uh, he got sick several times walking through the fields. Uh, it would be hot. It was in a very hot area. They wouldn't wear a shirt. They sweat a lot. Uh, and yeah, and some people actually had, uh, they get the shakes uh, mm -hmm. because they'd overdose on nicotine. Yes. Uh, and it can give you very long-term effects. Uh, I wanted to ask you too about the scopolamine. It used to be back in the late 60s and 1970s, that Somonex, the over-the-counter sleeping aid called Somonex, had scopolamine in it. And it was used by people who were taking LSD or other uh, hallucinogens, um, 
usually it was LSD or uh, the LSD that often had uh, amphetamines in it. They call them orange barrels and things like that. The people would take the Sominex to come down from the trip because those, when you had amphetamine mixed with the LSD, uh, the trips could last a couple days at a time. So the way they'd come down is by taking uh, Sominex. You can't, it's not in Sominex any, anymore. I want to make that clear. People are uh, running to the drugstore. Let's get it. It's, it's not there. You can't, you can't get it now. Uh, but it's surprising. Uh, I know it was used as a sleep aid. Um, I used Sominex when I was uh, very young. When I say very young, I was in my early 20s, uh, mainly as a sleeping aid. I've always had trouble getting to sleep. And it was it's quite effective. Yeah, yeah I, can't, I can't remember having any hallucinogenic effects from it, maybe other than lots of dreams. I'm not familiar with Sominex, but I know it's used in dentistry and yeah. like my mother, she's a nurse and she, she's a hospice nurse and she keeps scopolamine patches that right. they use for various purposes. And, and if you get like um, homeopathic teething pit yeah. tablet for babies, they make those with belladonna. Um, yeah. But of course, homeopathic, it's so diluted, it wouldn't affect you in that right. way anyway. But um, right. the only other medicinal application I know of are these asthma cigarettes. You can look up Asmador. Um, they would, it would have cannabis, Datura, Belladonna, sometimes Henbane would be mixed in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I know it was used that way. The reason I brought up tobacco sickness is this, you can get the same thing from nightshades. Uh, yeah. And I experienced this the first time with my wife. We came upon this um, this abandoned house in Tupelo that had angel trumpets growing everywhere out in the front of it. And we decided we would get out and just pick some flowers. And we were loading up on these flowers. And before I knew it, just from the sap from and I, not sap, but it's a, just the juices out of it from picking those flowers, getting on our yeah. hands, we got so like kind of just at, just scared because we were so far from home we knew we needed to get somewhere safe, but it, it came on so quick and unexpected. But you can yeah. get the same thing. That's, so, that's funny that you say that about um, scopolamine. So I think I'm trying to think who the guest was. It might have been Matthew Palomari maybe like two or three times ago when he was on. But he mentioned one of his friends gardening and cutting a bunch of Datura like roots and getting like the the goo on his fingers or hands or mm -hmm. cuts on his hands. And then somehow he became like super intoxicated and he couldn't figure out why, but he thinks that that's, so now you're talking about um, something similar, like how, how does that get into your body so easily if that's the case? Well, and, and that's, you, you've heard about the witch's ointment, the witch's hallucinogens that they would allegedly put in these ointments, boil it up in pig fat and then smear it all over their body. Um, there definitely were witches ointments later. The earliest reference are Tom Hatzis points this out in his book, uh, the witches ointment that there, there really wasn't a witches ointment in the beginning, but there be became one as this kind of myth of an, a flying ointment evolved. But, uh, I, I have some that I use. It's on top of my shelf up there. Um, that was made by Kobe Michael and it's a Datura ointment. And, um, Traditionally, it's not just for psychoactive purposes or to help you sleep. They also use use these plants as poultices for 
sprains, bruises, aches, and things like that. And that's how we first started using it. My wife has some trouble. She's got a, uh, called Ehlers-Donlos syndrome where she, she's, um, she's incredibly double jointed and her joints will come out and they, when they do, it hurts. And we tried this to see if it would help. And it, it's been a miracle drug for her, but I found that, uh, it's really good just for meditative practices. Also, there's a definite, a definite shift that happens putting it on topically and it's, it's more manageable than ingesting it for sure, but it's still dangerous. Yeah, I think uh, scopolamine's the perfect example of Paracelsus is uh, dosage makes the poison, right? Yeah. Because yep. you, you can get a scopolamine patch if you've got seasickness and it doesn't really probably do anything psychoactively to you. Uh, but then on the highest, people are mixing brumancia in ayahuasca and having these nuts, which a lot of people that I know that do ayahuasca don't recommend it. Why mix to turn? Yeah, toe, exactly. So, um, but yeah, so, oh, and earlier when I, when I, uh, when I brought up, you know, the Joe Rogan and the drinking, the black drink, I forgot to mention that your name was actually mentioned on uh, Joe Rogan. Brian yeah. mentioned, he said Danny Newman, which if you don't know, that's obviously PD's real name's Danny, but, uh, we call him PD. So if you were confused by that, that's who that is. Yeah. And, and Joe Rogan followed me on Instagram right after that. I was kind of shocked. You're famous, bro. You're Rogan famous. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> Somebody needs to to let my wife know. Yeah, we got we got to hold on to your coattails while we can. Well, you ask how these substances could get in the body uh, from you know through the skin. Anybody who's working outside a lot, anybody who is wearing shorts, uh, and you're you're walking through un untamed land, you're going to have little cuts and scrapes and all over your body and all over your hands. And you're, you're definitely going to, uh, touch the plants. There's just no way around it. So that may be enough to do it. I used to grow a, a lot of nightshade in my backyard cause it looked beautiful. When I lived at a lake, we had this hill going down and we grew loads of it there. Um, I knew what it was, but it was the plants were so beautiful. Uh, and they lasted four or five years. They kept coming back and then just simply died out. Uh, but I've never, I want to make it clear. I've never tried any of that. Uh, the, um, yeah, sure, the, pal. Uh, sir? I said, yeah, sure, well, pal. <laughs> no, that, that's true. I never tried any of that. Uh, none of these, none of these kinds of substances. Uh, I have definitely tried other hallucinogenics uh, and, uh, marijuana and so on and the statute of limitations has passed on everything yeah actually uh, if you're interested i think we have a few patreons with you where you really let it loose and let us know yeah. what you've done so if yeah interested. yeah so but i the natural stuff uh, uh about the only what's what's the uh i'm trying to think the only natural thing that i took uh and it was a test to see what it would do <laughs> i kept nutmeg uh, nutmeg is the only thing and nutmeg is incredibly, it's incredibly stupid to take nutmeg and have a hallucinogenic experience. The reason is that with nutmeg, the lethal dose or the damage dose is just above the effective dose. So you have to take enough nutmeg to have the effect. But if you take any more beyond that, you can get liver damage and lots of other problems with it. So it's just incredibly stupid to do that. 
Uh, and so I admit I've done some incredibly stupid things before. PD? I, I never tried the nutmeg before. I've always read about it. You know, Char Charlie Parker, the famous uh, jazz sax player, he liked yeah. to put nutmeg in his Coca-Cola before a show. <laughs> wow. Uh, it, Interesting. It, it, it has an effect. I will say that it is, and it lasts uh probably 24 to 48 hours uh it it lasts crazy. and it's because the liver can't metabolize it it's blocking up the liver the, the sailors the sailors drug because it was discovered by sailors um traveling spice back yeah. and forth. they probably ran out of food they're like let's just eat these spices i have i have a um a grimoire I'm, I'm researching a lot of grimoires right yeah. now magical texts from europe and there, there's one that talks about it's a love spell to get a, a woman to fall in love with you or a man but the spell is to uh to eat an entire a whole nutmeg and yeah okay i imagine that's pretty probably pretty close to a dangerous dose well, i don't i never did i never did the they usually talked about tablespoons uh, and essentially with a can of nutmeg, you know, it's ground nutmeg that you put in eggnog every year for, for Christmas or whatever. Uh, it's, I don't even want to say how much you, but it's a lot. Uh, and it just in, in massive doses, it just tastes terrible. It is, and it's hard to hold down. You're going to throw up probably, uh, it's hard to hold down. Uh, and, uh, it's not anything that if somebody did it once, it's probably not anything they would want to do more than once. Uh, but it does last uh, 24 to 48 hours. It doesn't that's put you to sleep. Yeah, that's that's yeah, <laughs> pretty bad stuff. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about all these. Con so, like, obviously, I've been doing psychedelics now for over 20 years. And um, the interesting thing to me is because I am interested in ancient civilizations and ancient knowledge and esoteric stuff. I would have thought that tryptamines would have been way more prevalent, but seems to me based on native American culture, the Romans, the Greeks, um, just to name a few, but like tropanes really, um, were heavily favored, uh, in a lot of civilizations where yep. I don't find, I don't like them. I don't find them pleasant. I'm more of a, a tryptamine guy, but, um, I just find that very interesting. Yeah. Well, they had mushrooms. Yeah. There were mushrooms available, of course. I know no, I know, but you don't really see too many mushroom depictions in Greek art, if there's any. I no, can't not think. in Greek art. Yeah. The Native Americans, that I think part of the... Well, yeah, oh, yeah, the Native sacred mushroom rituals and the... Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what is it? The, um, the Vienna Codex um, has depictions yeah. of, you know, ceremonies and stuff like that. And, and Greg wrote about the... Um, the mushroom effigy wand that was found in uh, well effigy. Yeah. Where was it? Why don't you tell Newark. us a little it bit about that? New, it was the Newark earthworks where they found Newark. The, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Newark. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the problem with that is they don't grow year round. Uh, right. You're not going to find Newark, Ohio is pretty cold in the winter. Uh, so they don't, so the mushrooms don't come up. And the weird thing that I know about is the, the ritual where I am certain that they shared these hallucinogenic substances with the masses were done in the dead of winter. Uh, Cause like the black drink weren't, wasn't shared with the masses. And I know, I know PD knows that 
uh, and women, uh, generally except for one, and that was a secret, one woman could use it, but women didn't use the black drink. But I know that they used hallucinogens in the winter ceremonies and the rituals of the dead. Uh, and that, to me, that's actually what I've been focusing on lately. Not necessarily the use of the rituals or the hallucinogens, but the rituals themselves. Uh, and I've wondered, did they store those? Did somebody walk around with a bag full of dried mushrooms? Um, either I psilocybin. So. Yeah, yeah. I think that would have been the case. When I was researching the book, um, we don't know what it's going to be called yet, but the book I'm I have come out with inner traditions on Native American shamanism in the Mississippi Valley. When I was looking at uh, at that mushroom effigy wand, because in the literature, most of the scholars identify it as an Amanita muscaria, but the, it's I don't think it is yeah. because it's the dimensions are all wrong for an right. Amanita. But when you look at Newark in that area, there are between 10 and 12 different psilocybin mushrooms that grow yeah. there at different times of the year. And I, I, I boiled it down to what I think are the two best candidates. Um, but I don't know how prevalent they are out there. I don't know how easy it is to identify them. Uh, when it comes to, f to fungus, you really have to be an expert um, to, to be able to pick the right kinds unless you're, you know, here in the South, everybody knows yeah. what the Cubensis. If you're looking like. for a good follow on, you know, mycology, obviously Paul Stamets, but pictures and identification is actually Alan Rockefeller. And he has different groups on mm -hmm. uh, Facebook and all the platforms. So check out Alan Rockefeller. He's a great resource on mycology. He is. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we were in Newark a few months ago. And uh, well, now it's not been a few. It's been, well, it is a few months ago. Uh, and actually, we spent a week traveling around up there and I did see mushrooms in a, a variety of places where there were mounds in the, in the mountains and in flatland uh, throughout Ohio, uh, encountered them in the woods, everything from Fort Ancient, Ohio. Newark is too mowed. It's a, it's a golf course or it's been a golf course up to today. Uh, and so it's mowed and you don't see any there, but at Fort Ancient, at the Williamson Mound site and the uh, uh, Pollock Earthworks, which is near there, uh, and also at what's called Fort Miami, which was a, uh, a Hopewell era fort, we saw some mushrooms there too. I am not an expert to identify mushrooms, uh, but I would have bet that some of those were uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, and I've actually read archaeological reports now where they they say that they they know that they had psilocybin mushrooms and they would have had experts in identifying them. They would have pretty much been devoted to that from early life on. Uh, mm -hmm. So somebody would have known that. I think Great so, too. Pictures. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And I think that you're probably spot on with with the saying that they probably stored them um, because they were experts at food preservation. They would have known right. how to store it properly. And uh, how I long would, would they, how long could they be kept? How long could you uh, dry and keep a mushroom like that without a, an airtight plastic <clears throat> bag, for example, how well, long can that be done? I'll step in here because I do know a lot about psilocybin. Um, okay. So the, if you just leave them sitting out in like a sealed ish container, they're going to slowly lose their potency. Most people keep them in their freezer or make capsules or whatever they're going to do. But um, it does slowly, if you had like, if they, if they dried them out during the summer or the fall or whatever, they could, or spring, they could have easily, that would last. I think you could probably get hallucinogenic, you know, properties. I've, I found old bags, you know, three, four years old that still do something to you. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and of course, in the winter the up year, there, they could have frozen them. That's true. And if it, if it was the same winter, uh, the same year that they picked them, I think it's absolutely possible. Yeah. Chasing Mound Builders mentions honey. That's a good way to preserve it, too. You could make tincture. Yeah. You could, there's a lot they of stuff. I don't know when, when honey became a thing. They had a, a form of honey that they got from, uh, from Central America. Um, yeah, like we've had Tom Lane people. talking about that black bee or whatever. Where that's right, that's yeah. it. Yeah, and that so, but it's not honey like we know it, but it might have the same properties. I'm not sure, but it's a. Uh, but as far as true honey from bees, I, I don't know when that became a, a, a part of their practice. So I had a, a another question for PD on this. If I can ask it, is that okay? This is the uh, Greg yeah, Little I, show. Go ahead. No, it's not. The, no, no it's the, it is. No. Yeah, it no, is. I'm really, happy. But... I'm, I, I'm like listening to this. Go ahead. All right. So, so honey locust. All right. Mm. So in, in Hudson's book here, Hudson talks about the honey locust and the making of tea out of the leaves. Of course, he never mentions the roots. And of course, Hudson's book is now 80 to 40 years old. Uh, so in the in those 40 years, I suspect there's a lot more evidence that's come out. What are you aware of in the in the literature where they talk about maybe finding evidence of the use of the root bark of the honey locust? So the best, and you know why, you know why I'm asking. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the reason being that most most academics don't know this. I know. Because it's only in one source and that the source is not an academic source. Um, he tested it on himself and it's a man that calls himself keeper of the trout. And he wrote this book called some simple tryptamines where he was basically trying everything in the most mimosoides family from acacia to mimosas that everything he'd get his hands on testing them to see if they were psychoactive. And he was testing them on himself and through different, uh, lab techniques but he found it in the roots of honey locust, which is Gladitia triacanthos. It's also known as Acacia Americana. Um, but it, it's the best 
I, and I believe the earliest source is James Mooney. Um, mm-hmm. And you know all about James Mooney yeah. when he's talking about, um, I believe it's, the, he's talking about the Navajo. I could be wrong though. That Zuni. No, they're, they're in our area. Yeah. They're South, okay. Southeastern. But right. he's well, talking. Was, Mooney wrote about the Cherokee too. A massive Cherokee. Book on the Cherokee. That's what, yeah. Cherokee, yeah. not the Navajo. Um, and in it, uh, first he says that he gives a couple of myths and the myth it's in is called the gambler. Um, but there's this, the hero twins, the same hero twins that pop up everywhere from South America to Central America to all these different native tribes. Um, the myth is probably a, uh, what's called a charter for an initiation ritual that would have been a very real rite of passage that boys would have went through. But the myth is that he's trying to find his father and he finds out that his father is the sun God, the sun figure. Uh, You know, it changes with the, the way it's told. Sometimes he's not the sun. Sometimes he's just God. and, And it's, I hate to use that word because it's a very different way of thinking about it than Westerners do today, but he approaches him and he's put through these rites of passage. And the first test is he has to lay down on this bed that he doesn't know is made of thorns from the honey locust. Mm. And when that doesn't kill him, he has to go play uh, the ball game with the chunky game. I'm not sure if it's chunky or if it's going to be the stick ball because that's not really spelled out in Mooney, but okay. he has to go play this, the, the ball game with his other sons. And in this, his mother pulls him aside uh, and tells him that they're going to try and kill him during this game. And he has to stop the game by shooting his lightning. Cause you know, the hero twins are thunder and lightning figures he has to shoot his lightning at the honey locust tree. And when he does this, the, the, his father will stop the game because he doesn't want to lose that tree. And now in a different section of the same study, Mooney talks about how they would make this, the sticks for the stickball game out of the honey locust. And it would be particularly made from a honey locust that had been struck by lightning because they believed that a deity lived in it, which excuse me, was a lightning deity. And they would also, and this is where, where it really starts to sound, it's like something's going on. In addition to taking that ash from where the lightning strikes and drawing crosses on their shoulders, which is the, what they put on before they play this game, um, they take the roots of the honey locust and chew them. And then they take the spit and rub it all over their body. So they're, they're covering themselves in, in tryptamines and chewing on it, and definitely probably swallowing some in the process. Um, and then the final rite of passage for this boy is he has to climb into a pot with that's already has the roots of the honey locust in it, and it's going to boil him. And it boils him and, and kills him, and, uh, and he comes back to life, or in some versions it doesn't kill him, it doesn't phase him at all. But 
the indication is that they're boiling these roots already in this setting. Now, as far as what the ritual would have looked like this, this was a charter for, um, there's no telling. It could have been something as simple as a test of faith to see if they would get in the pot to be boiled. Um, who knows? But that's the first indication that we have that the roots are being a boiled and b smeared all over the body and c chewed on and and again if that was if that what else it doesn't say anything about other ingredients in that pot with the roots um and there, there are, are gorgettes that you can find this what's called the spaghetti style gorgettes yeah. that have the boy in the pot with the roots you can see him boiling in the shell um but there's no indication of other plants added to it. But in the event that there were, if this was mixed with a black drink ceremony, the, the Ilex vomitoria has trace amounts of MAOIs in it. Nicotiana rustica has trace amounts of MAOIs in it. Um, the other plant that, that grows everywhere around here is Passiflora incarnata, um, the very alien looking passion flower. It's loaded with MAOIs. So if any of these were mixed with the that honey locust the the result would have been something virtually indistinguishable from what we would call ayahuasca hmm. and just so everybody knows he, he released it on here you know last episode but the misawaska analog theory is definitely pd so if you see any psychedelic people yeah. out there let us know because they're straight up you know, trying to jack that idea. Well, thank you. I, I suspect it'll, it'll, um, get out of hand once, once. Well, let's just say there's already people jacking ideas from people. I, I see oh, yeah. it all the time. So I, I get it all the time myself. I, 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 am, I have, I have been, Greg's probably been victimized the most by the jacking. Uh, no, I have to admit, <laughs> I am, I have been amazed at what Mr. Newman here has, has done in this research. Uh, and I've told him that, uh, he's been very kind to me. We met, I don't know, maybe a year ago, maybe mm -hmm. something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when you're my age, time kind of does weird things. So it's hard mm -hmm. to tell when something happened. But anyway, um, his research is absolutely incredible. What he has uncovered with this, all these old myths he talks about. I've got the the book that he's talking about with Moody's stuff on the Cherokee. Uh, I don't know how many pages that Moody's part is. These are these are giant books put out by the Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology in the late 1800s. Uh, most of them are six, seven, eight hundred pages long. And Moody's and they're in they're in like nine point type, which is it's it's a little smaller than newspaper print. Uh, but the man has gone through all these stories of hundreds and hundreds of pages and pulled out these this mythology uh and i've read the stuff too here's where here's what's incredible to me i've read all that stuff and it so boggled my mind it's like nah i'm not going to pay any attention to the mythology i'm not paying attention to that i'm going to do exactly what the archaeologists did i'll tell you what the archaeologists did they went out and they measured mounds they would dig into them they'd pull the pottery out they'd get different styles of pottery figure out when they were made uh, figure out where the cultures traded, tried to come up with some dates and so on. And uh, that was about it. Uh, and that is kind of the route that I took too. Uh, I'd read the mythology, but because it was so dense and hard to understand, 
And it really takes somebody focusing. I mean, you have to mentally focus and then know it's like the spaghetti that what he called the gorget, the spaghetti gorgets have been a mystery. What they are, they are shells. They are carvings on shells. They're about this big around and they have designs on them. They have two holes at the top and the, the leaders of the tribe or the important elite members of the tribe would wear these suspended around their neck. And they had symbols on them. Well, the spaghetti gorgets had people on them or images of caricatures of people. And there are these odd squiggly shapes all over that look like spaghetti. That's why they were called spaghetti gorgets. Well, I, I looked at those many, many years ago, decades ago. And it's kind of like nobody knew what they were. None of the archaeologists speculated on any of that. They had no idea. None. Zero. Yet here's... PD, who by studying other people's stuff, by really digging into the details, has put all this together and put it all together with the actual substances they use. Because up to this time, the substances they used were different forms of tobacco. We knew they used hallucinogenic mushrooms. That's been known since, well, a long time. Uh, and we knew they made different kinds of tea out of all the, nat the natural stuff out there. Uh, and, and that was about it. There really was not a lot of understanding about what they were doing in the rituals and what the substances were. So I've got to hand it to him. Uh, he's opened my mind a great deal. And I've told him that. I've told him that I've learned far more from him than he learned from me and ever will learn from me. I don't and think so. You, you were the person who turned me on to the whole phenomenon. I had, I had never looked twice at the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex until I read your book on the path. Well, of soul. and it okay. blew me Graham right Hancock open. hadn't either. Graham Hancock hadn't either. People are not all that aware of it. Although if they'd read his book and go to the very end of it and read like a paragraph, they'll see Hancock read the path of souls and he had the mountain encyclopedia. Uh, and that was his introduction to these things, but that's a relatively simple idea. The path of souls is relatively simple. And I didn't come up with that. I simply kept up with what the ethnographers had been doing in recent times and popularized it. And I referenced that. I don't, I didn't come up with anything new in this. Uh, nothing. You uh, laid so, it out in a way that was much easier to grasp. Well, After I, I, write, you, I went back to you know, F. Kent Riley and, and yeah. George E. Lankford and all those made major guys. Um, and I think your presentation of it, theirs is, is spread around. It's modeled. Throughout oh, I know. Books and you got to, you have to piece it together. You, you pieced it together into a, a coherent, concise picture that just got my mind reeling when I was reading that book. Well, I, I appreciate it. But I, I remember standing on a mound with you and in downtown Memphis, DeSoto Man, mm -hmm. and uh, I was explaining, and I remember the time it happened, and I said, okay, uh, the soul jumps to the west, and I, because I've been down there at night or early in the morning watching Orion's Nebula sink into that western horizon. I used to live on the river downtown, and I watched this for over a year happening while I was writing the book. Every night, I'd be out at 3 and 4 a.m. walking. And then I'd watch Orion's Nebula sink. And I remember telling you that. And mm -hmm. I called it an ogie. I said it went into an ogie. And you added something to it that I wish I'd put in the book back then. And it was the idea that an ogie is a portal. It is an ogie, but it's not a portal to anywhere. 
it is simply like a shell. You're, you were correct in what you said. It allows the soul to be tucked away into this cell, this, this shell or this, this container that then goes through the underworld and come up, comes up the next night and the soul can hop on the Milky Way. That's the path of soul stuff for people that don't know what we're talking about here. But I remember that. And when you said that about the cup, it had never occurred to me that that is what is on a lot of the images of the path of souls. It is depicting that cup. It's depicting that specific portal, mm-hmm. uh, not as a place that you go through and out because we knew that wasn't the case. It simply held the soul until the next night when it could get on the Milky Way and then, of course, travel north and make it to Cygnus. But anyway, I, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I did write it up simply, but I missed a lot. And I appreciate, I think we were meant to meet with that. Uh, mm-hmm. And the first time we met was on an Indian mound in downtown Memphis. Yep. Uh, a weird, a weird one at that. Yes. A very strange one. It, it's one of the strangest ones in the country, actually, with that, with that rounded back. It's a square mm-hmm. mound that has a rounded back. It's bizarre, actually. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I'm rambling. Sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll shut up for a minute. Anyway. No, you're good. You're good. And actually, I appreciate PD, too, because you kind of brought Greg, because I remember the first few times we had him on. I tried to talk about this kind of stuff and I just felt a little hesitation. Maybe it's because I didn't bring the research that you've done. Um, you know, cause I know he's obviously, he understands psychopharmacology and native Americans and stuff like that, but I don't, I didn't know about like the Yaupon and the black drink and all the connections and all the stuff. I was just merely asking him about like stuff that they had found. So I think that with your research and everything, everything's kind of you know, come together where, like he said, you guys, you two are, are meant to meet between his knowledge of the metaphysics and the rituals and stuff like that, and your knowledge and, and the mounds, and then your knowledge of the psychoactive compounds and all that stuff. So it's a big deal. And I think it, it it's always been relevant, but this stuff just makes it that mo- much more relevant. And it, and it adds a dimension of complexity to what is largely seen as just kind of simple people, simple tribes. And, and it's not they simple. Weren't. It's very complex, advanced ways of thinking and, and acting and interacting. I'm just amazed every time I, I learn anything about these cultures. Now I'm still, I'm still learning about the Southwestern stuff. Uh, you know, there, it's like a whole nother world. There's a lot of crossover, but when you move from the Southeast to the Southwest, it's just it's so different, um, but I'm seeing I'm I'm seeing the same thing with the southwestern stuff. It's just as complex as the southeastern natives, but it it blows my mind. So there's something that I want to bring up here, which Greg and I kind of touched on before you jumped on the pre-call uh, PD, which is so this is like a depiction of one of the ceremonies. Here I'll pull up the better one. So you have the men sitting around there and then you have the women in the bottom right corner there making the black drink and you can kind of see the shell, I think, or no, this is not the one with the shell. Yeah. yeah. So my question is, um, I don't know a ton about the native American stuff, but I knew know a ton about the Soma, Homa, uh, Indo Iranian migrations and all that kind of stuff. Um, the women prepared the Soma, Homa, uh, women prepared the Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, Kekian. Um, do you think that that's 
you know, there's some rhyme to that reason why in all these cultures, the women are preparing these psychoactive compounds or like, why do you think that is? If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's a good question. I mean, I don't have an answer for that specifically. Um, now, have you ever heard of chicha? Uh, no, I have not. A corn, a corn beer that, that was produced in Central America. Um well, I'll tell you a cool story, and that, and they may be related. Um, do you know the brewer Dogfish Head? Uh, yeah, that was they, like one of the made, first dank beers circulating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they they used to have a um, a TV show. Uh, they they didn't make many episodes, um, but a TV show just about some of the more exotic beers they were brewing, and they decided they were going to make chicha, and traditionally. Chicha is made by chewing the corn up and spitting it out into a container and letting it ferment. So he's got all the guys in his brewery chewing corn for hours and spitting it out. And these, you know, it's tearing up their mouths and, and they leave it to ferment and come back and there's no fermentation. Nothing's happened. And um, they're, they're really perplexed by this. So they decide to travel down and observe them making it in the in a natural setting in an indigenous setting and there are no men making it it's only women and it wasn't until they 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 told the women they tried to make it and they thought it was hilarious they said no women have to do it It doesn't work if men do it and it turns out that there's an enzyme in the saliva of a female that is not present in the saliva of a male and this caused the reaction that results in chicha um, now, granted, I don't know of any reaction like that happening in this case, or even if they're chewing the stuff up, but it may have begun a tradition of women making it, men drinking it. Look at those designs on his body. I know. So somebody's skin. asking about what's, what he's holding. That's that shell, that spiral. So they use like a yeah. conch shell or... Um... Giant conch shells, and that's a small one. I mean, they, they are huge they get them from the used to get them from the gulf of mexico they don't even grow that large anymore um but they they are huge when you see one in person they would have held an an intimidating amount of liquid yeah that's one crazy. of the uh, back in the 1890s clarence bloomfield moore excavated a mound uh it's not far from jacksonville called um mount royal and in that mound, they recovered nearly 300 of these whelk shells. And then they, after that, in recent years, they have found that the ones in Spyro uh, and the ones that were actually in Cahokia came from that exact area and probably came from the same source. Uh, so they were moving those around. Some of these have been, I, I saw... Uh, earlier today, when I was uh, reading, I saw that some of these actually were in the Southwest, uh, and they were all the way up in 
uh, Wisconsin mounds and, and Michigan, all the way up just below the Great Lakes. That's they amazing. found these same whelk shells. Oh, yeah, there. we've got we got the shells here. I'm using them right now. Yeah, <laughs> they, they like the lightning whelk because it spirals to the left. You If you look yeah. at most shells, um, conch shells like that, the spiral is to the right. But this one certain kind spirals to the left, and that's what they preferred. And the connection of that has a lot to do with left-handedness um, used in these rituals, uh, mm. particularly associated with, with bear, um, one of their um, manitous or manitos, which are kind of their, their spirits, their gods. But bears, for example, in the Ojibwa, they tell a story about... Um, how a lot of the drugs that they use, the medicines they use, they learned about by watching bears from a distance. And bears are notorious for seeking out plants that have intoxicating properties. Um, <laughs> like just the, the cocaine bear, you know, like that's a yeah. true story because they <laughs> like, they can, they can find them and they like to use these, these drugs. But the bear figure, um, he, he's, associated with grizzly man what greg you know that pipe the grizzly man yeah. pipe yeah uh, and, and he is particularly associated with the pleiades the yeah there that you go good. the pleiades <laughs> um this is the, the genuine pleiades. artifact <laughs> no really <laughs> no dr greg's got his knickknick in there sorry uh, I put it awesome. um they, they he's associated with the pleiades uh, and for them, their name for Pleiades was he who holds a deer head in his left hand. Mm -hmm. And on the, the other form of the grizzly man pipe where he's kneeling, he's got the deer head in his hand. He's got the, the teeth in it for earrings. Um, he's, he, the, the left handedness is associated specifically with this. Well, it's why he's left handed. There's some connection with bear and these shells. And the, the left handed thing also comes about because there, there's a, a myth they tell about how these hunters are coming in and they're, they're coming into this village of bears and they're going to shoot them. And one of the bears hears about it and he scrambles to get his, his slippers on, his moccasins on, but he puts them on the wrong feet and runs away. And he becomes the ancestor that all the, I think all the other bears die. He's the one that's left and all the new bears come from him. So because he put his slippers on backwards, that's how they explain why bears feet turn a different direction than other animals, than humans. Their, their left shoe is on their right foot and vice versa. But it introduced this whole practice of left hand associations. Yeah, that's weird, bro. It's a synchronicity. My nickname in high school was bear given to me by Maurice and I'm left handed. So Yeah, that's you're the bear, man. Uh, you descend uh, from that bear. <laughs> um, so the, the other interesting, so we didn't really discuss it, but so they don't use the berries right from that uh, Yaupon holly. So here's what the berries look like. But I read, don't they take the leaves and the twigs and then they keep um, boiling it down till it becomes like a black ish. Goo. You roast it first. You have to yeah, yeah. You roast. They said it like a like a um, like a coffee bean or yeah, like decarboxylating right. pot or something. That's exactly right. And then they they don't use the berries. The berries are actually 
um, a purgative. You eat the berries, you're going to Well, I heard they're toxic. It says, and I don't know if this is true online, it says it can, you can go into liver failure if you ingest it. I wouldn't doubt it. You know, it's true of a lot of berries. Um, But they would just use the leaves and the small twigs, not the big branches, but the small twigs. Um, They'd roast them. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of videos you can look up of people doing it in the wild, like camping and and coming up on yawpon and and roasting it in a in a, a a metal bowl or some kind of receptacle and then making the tea out of it. Um, and it tastes great, you know. You, it's not grassy. It it tastes like a tea. It's very light. Now, of course, the concentrations at which they were boiling it to, I think it would you know it's almost like a syrup. And it was probably pretty gnarly, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a nematic, right? It. It's making people barf in the photos. Not, it's... It, it not it, if you don't put the, the drugs with it that cause it to be an emetic, it doesn't right. do that. Okay. So, so, but the Yaupon, that's what contains this like super high dose of caffeine, correct? Once it's been yep. decarboxylated yep. and, and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, but it also contains theobromine, which is not good, right? In large it, amounts. This is in co- um, chocolate. It shows up in. Yeah. That's actually, most people think chocolate's what causes dogs to go into It's actually the theobromine. Large amounts of theobromine is what causes that. That's what they found in the pictures and um, at Chaco Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in room. 18, 30, I think there's an eight in it, uh, but they found all of these different uh, tall um, cups with specific designs on them that looked very similar to the cups they use for the chocolate ceremonies down in South America. But this is in Chaco Canyon, you know, and uh, and America, it's North America. So, so it seems it, 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 until they tested do you it find that the, they, the do you find that they, they did the same chocolate. thing? On their pottery, where the designs on the pottery in the Southwest were intended to be a way to pass along the information of what's supposed to be put in yep. that pottery. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And you're the first person that ever that I ever heard explain that too. Uh, and you had a brilliant way of saying it or of writing it, uh, which I probably couldn't couldn't even. Uh, explain myself well i could explain it but not as simply as you did uh but i found that pretty brilliant too but you think there but in what you've seen in their pottery the designs did stipulate a way for the information to be passed along about what these pots are used for so they use the pots for the same stuff over and over that's right yeah specific vessels for specific compounds and it you got to think uh uh a group of people that don't have a written language. I mean, and, and it, you, it's hard to say that too, because like w- with the Mita Wewin, they have a written language, but it's yeah. not universal. It, you, they know how to write an idea down on their birch bark scrolls, but the person who wrote it has to explain to you what it means. Nobody else could pick it up and read it. So it's not a language in the way we would think about it. So even though there, there was a written language, it wasn't one that, Anybody could pick up and know, but if you make the vessel specific to the contents, either in shape, the way you've constructed it, or in the painting, the design on it, then it becomes a physical representation uh, mimicking the thing they put in it. So for with the Datura, there are a lot of different cases where they use Datura, depending on the context, changes the vessel. You know, you'll see some that have the 
old woman, the hunchback dwarf with the knobs all over. Those knobs are are in, a, in an attempt to mimic the spikes all over the Datura seed pods. And yeah, that's one right there. Yeah. So what, they use that to bash it? No, that's they're drinking the Datura oh, out of the... If oh, they want, oh, okay, yeah. I gotcha, I gotcha. If they want yeah. to have one certain type of experience, but Datura is used in a lot of different contexts, so you'll see different vessels. Another one that is housed at uh, Gilcrease Museum in Oklahoma, it's got the uh, a spiral on the front and then the jagged kind of things coming down that they now recognize as the proboscis and the wing pattern of the tobacco moth that, that feeds only on tobacco and datura. So this tobacco moth, even in their mythology, becomes an indicator for datura use. So he's, I can't remember the, uh, Singleton, Eric Singleton, I think is who did that, that, uh, that study. But they, they tested the bottle and sure enough, it tested positive for Datura. And that was the first real clear argument that said, yes, this, when we see this moth, we're looking at the possible that the use of Datura. What, what I'm wondering is, were they also using the moths? Because these, the butterflies and moths will feed on certain toxic plants that make them bitter and even toxic to animals, their, to their predators. And they do this to deter them from eating them, from wanting to eat them. Well, that means they're retaining the alkaloids in their body even after they go through metamorphosis. So it made me wonder, were they using the moths? Because we know that they were using the worms, the tobacco hornworms that um, they'd pick off the plants. There's a, a, a myth that is definitely a charter for a ritual process, another rite of passage where those two boys, those two twin hero boys, they're, they have to first, um, they take these, the, they're pointed out to them. The, the person with them says, you see this, um, I think his name's Wasadek is what they call the, the caterpillar. But he says, you see this, he will, he will puke, he will spit out blue puke. And he says, um, take it and put it in your mouth but don't chew it, but hold it in your mouth and spit the juice out like you do tobacco. So, and these worms have the ability, we know this, to, to retain nicotine in their bodies, whereas most insects would be toxified by that. It doesn't affect them because of a certain protein in their bodies. And it allows them to both spit it out, like eject it, and they can exhale it in the form of a gas. So when a predator comes around them, they can breathe it out and it smells it and it will leave them alone. Well, they're putting this in their mouth and using it just like tobacco juice. And they don't just feed on tobacco, they feed on detura also. So they're using this worm as an entheogenic substance, that particularly it's vomit. And after, in the same myth, after this, once they survive that, then they have to go and smoke what they call from a calumet, the, the sacred calumet, they take off the wall and they have to smoke the tobacco that kills is what they call it, which is very probably Datura. They, they recognize that they were similar. They're both nightshades, uh, even though, you know, we, we officially classify them both as nightshades, but they recognize that too. But what sets the Datura apart is it will kill you if you use too much of it. And they roll them, uh, these balls of it and pack it in the calumet and they smoke it and they survive that too. And that's how they come to find out sure enough, they're the, 
hero twins that were separated from this father figure, just like in the, uh, the honey locust myth. Very but they show up on the pottery. The, you've seen the ones I sent you the picture with even the worm who yeah. has the eyes, the little eyes all over him. Those eyes, they, they mimic. And of course, the, 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 the ogie image, how it looks like an eye. It's not an eye, but it looks like an eye. Yeah. They would have immediately recognized that on those caterpillars. I believe that. I, I just, it's such yeah, that's, a perfect picture. That's, that's interesting. Lately, I've been seeing a lot of different, you know, well, from the, I'm sure you saw the cicadas with the psilocybin uh, fungal bottoms on them. And yeah. then you have, um, actually, I sent you, you were doing that um, research on uh, Hecate or Hecate, whatever the Hecate. name is. Hecate. And I sent you that find from Pompeii where they found lizard tails um, and Hecate or Hecatete. <laughs> I'm very good with Greek words, but for some reason that one sounds more Mesoamerican to me. For it does, reason. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they found lizard tails in those, um, what are they, vases, jars or whatever with all the psychoactive wine. They're called dolmas. Yeah. Dolmas. Or dolmas. Um, they found lizard tails in there. So that's definitely associated. Mm -hmm. But then we were talking too, and I started looking, there's some, seems like there might be some psychoactive properties in some of these lizard tails. Oh yeah. There's a, I wrote about that in my second book. If you look at angels in vermilion, I put an appendix in there um, about, it was initially I was researching the reference to Syrian rue in the, Hecate rituals from the Chaldean oracles, they call it savage rue or wild rue, which is Paganum harmala, a very potent, probably the most potent source of MAOIs in a plant. And they're using it in the construction of this statue. Um, but the more I dug, the more I found other references to rue being used with other things, including lizards. And once I started digging into that, there are there are medical papers from India, from uh, it's, it's really bad in India where they'll catch these house geckos. And that's actually in the same Chaldean oracles ritual that I'm talking about. She says to take the lizards that you find about the house. That's exactly how she puts it. And in India, they're taking these house geckos and roasting them black and powdering them and smoking them with opiates, that it's increasing the effects of opiates. Um, and then in some cases they're mixing it with tobacco and with cannabis, but, uh, but it's, it, it may, it made it look like it's an epidemic over there or something. That, the first, I found the earliest one, they were saying, we don't know what's going on with this. This, this opiate addict is now addicted to smoking lizard tails. And he, he goes through three to eight lizards a day, you know, and then, but the, as the years go on, I'm finding where they're this just, guy's just about, crunching this guy's just yeah. chopping lizard tails all ch chopping you, beaks chopping lizard tails here screen name uh made a funny comment i put it up on the screen it says witches are just smarter than everyone else and probably knew or probably where the tail of the newt comes from you know like when they're making their potions and their brews and whatever chopping amphibian yeah. and lizard tail it's probably where it's that possible. came from yeah. it's possible and there if you look in the greek magical papyri uh, which is an old book of magical spells from Greco Egypt. There's one in there that they say that they hide the true identity of the substances they're using in these brews 
under the names of animal parts. And this is probably part of what influenced, for example, Macbeth, when Shakespeare has them doing, you know, the eye of newt and wing of bat and all these things. You can find correlations to virtually every tongue, uh, the tongues of animals broken down and telling you what plant it is, that these are actually plants. So that gives it a whole new dimension of complexity that, I mean, it doesn't call into question the intoxicating properties of the lizards, but it, it shows that that kind of language was being manipulated pretty early on. Dr. Greg. Um, so I've got some videos up here. I'm going to pull up one here of Cahokia. Okay. Let's see here. This is like an aerial. Um, Monk's man. Monk's mound. Um, so is there any correlation between these rituals? Like, obviously, they didn't build the mounds to do psychoactive compounds. I'm sure that wasn't really the thinking. But was there any connection between the mounds and specifically some of the, um, you know, rich? This is Cahokia, by the way. Um, all right. So so leave the picture up a minute. First of all, that that is called Monk's Mound. It's 100 feet tall. It's as tall as a 10-story building. Its base covers 14 acres. The Great Pyramid at Giza covers 13 acres. So it's an acre. Its base is covering one acre more than the Great Pyramid. Uh, back in 1987, nearly 5,000 people were on the top. That gives you an idea of how big it is. Because no matter what you do with these pictures, you cannot tell how large they are. You just can't tell with a picture. I recently read an article by an archaeologist who said it's almost useless showing picture, people pictures of mounds because you can't tell how massive these things are. So anyway, yes, the answer is yes. The people who determined the, the sizes, the layout, the design, the angles and orientations of the mounds at these sites were the same elite people who were involved in the rituals. And a lot of, a lot of mound sites, not all of them, but a lot of them, their orientations and placements were specifically done in a way so that rituals could be performed at very specific times in, of the year. For example, the winter solstice, the summer solstice, archaeologists have always told us, oh, they were just used as a calendar. That was all calendar. But we now know, you know, calendars for planting. However, we now know that that's not entirely the case. These sites were designed to point to the risings and settings of certain stars and constellations that were employed in rituals. It's really that simple. So as far as the rituals go, a lot of the rituals did employ hallucinogenic substances. Um, I believe the winter solstice ritual, the Path of Souls, when primarily used doses of psilocybin mushrooms, uh, I don't think they gave the populace the black drink, but it was it's because it was such a long ritual that lasted an entire night from sunset all the way to the uh, an hour or so after sunrise. So the answer is yes. Uh, the same people designed them and laid them out as who conducted the rituals. And we know that the, the shaman and the medicine people had many, many classes 
and secret societies. The Medawin societies of the Ojibwe had various groups within them, and they all had certain assignments. Uh, the Zuni in the Southwest, I've, I've done a bit studying them, uh, and that's actually part of what I'm doing now. But they had people that were assigned to doing nothing but plants and plant medicine, the collecting and identification of plants. And when they were asked how they knew what plants did what, they said the gods told us uh, that they would interact with the gods. So that's my, I don't know if it's a simple answer, but that's my answer. By the way, at the base of that mound, uh, pretty much down toward the base in the center is a large stone structure that was discovered in the late 1990s. Uh, it has never been entered. Uh, when I say it's large, I think it's 30 some feet tall and about 70 feet long. Uh, and I believe 45 feet fits in there. I think it's 45 feet wide. So it's a very large stone structure. But a lot of these mounds, the temple mounds, were once uh, a smaller temple mound. And when the king or the leader died or the chief or whatever you want to call him died, uh, they would sometimes bury them in the temple and burn the temple and they would make a stone chamber around it and then enlarge the mound. Uh, there's speculation that that may be what it is at the base of Monk's Mound. I've published a lot of photos of the stone chambers found in mounds. Uh, they're not my photos. Do but, you, yeah. what's the oldest? I mean, I know, so I think well, that's we, changed. Probably <laughs> since the last time I was on right. your show, well, the, well, the oldest uh, mound now is 9,000 BC. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so the first time we had you on, I believe we were talking about your book, Denise of an Origins with yes. Andrew Collins. Um, and when we had you on, yeah, we were talking about the South American mounds and how a lot of them are older. And yep. we were talking about people traveling more and probably people populating the Americas. They keep talking about the Beringia and, you know, the kelp high, highway and all these theories. But doesn't it just make more sense that since people got to Easter Island through Polynesia, that they just continued on to South America or... Yeah you know, something along those lines or back and forth. And well, the, that's called the Southern route. And the Southern route to a lot of people is already proven by the fact that in the Amazon, there are tribes that pretty much have had no contact or very little contact with outsiders. Uh, and their genetics is identical to the genetics of the indigenous people of Australia and New Zealand and a few of the islands there. There's, that's where they came from. There's no other place they could have come from. Uh, and they've been there for, as far as they know, they've been there forever. Uh, but uh, but there is a there are many sites in South America that date to 50,000 BC. North American archaeologists don't accept that. Uh, they don't put it in the textbooks. And since most of the people that that read my books and read your you know watch your show are in North America, they're not, and they're going to look at North American what North American archaeologists said. North American archaeologists ignore all that. Uh, they just say it's all nonsense and cannot be. But yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that South America was inhabited at least by 50,000 BC. And there's very solid evidence in Mexico, near Mexico City, at a very bizarre site that dates to now 300,000 years ago. It was initially discovered by Mexican archaeologists 
Uh, it's a inc there's an incredible story about the site. There's a, not, a lot of films about it now. How the head of the museum in Mexico City got very upset because he wasn't called in. He claimed it was a hoax. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey are the people who dated the artifacts at the site and dug some of them out. And they initially dated to 250,000 years ago. Since then, in 2004 and 2005, a number of archaeologists have gone back, different groups from all over the world. They have sent their samples to Germany and France and North America, and they all come, and the U.S. Geological Survey again, they all come back with dates between 250,000 years ago to 400,000 years ago. Now, they would not be humans like us. They would be some other branch of humanity that is probably extinct. Uh, Andrew and I did talk about the Denisovans as that group. I don't believe those were Denisovans. I think they are uh, some other branch of humanity. Uh, and it's pretty clear that... Could be Homo naledi. We've now we're seeing these... Well, there's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot. 300,000, yeah. There was an event 70,000 years ago that caused a population bottleneck all over the world. So I think the Americas were heavily settled long before then. Uh, and around 70,000 BC, there was that disaster that occurred. What they're saying is the recovery from the disaster uh, took place around 50,000 BC and the population started increasing. And that's the dates now that pop up. Uh, in South America over and over, 50,000 BC. There's about eight, nine sites that go to 50,000. In North America, there's one site that goes to 50,000 BC, and that is the Topper site in South Carolina uh, that Albert Goodyear, uh, archaeologist, University of South Carolina, has been working at for decades. Uh, I spoke with an archaeologist who worked under Goodyear for years that he said the research is as solid as it can be. And the archaeologist is a skeptic, a well-known skeptic. I have several well-known skeptics that I'm friendly with. I can't mention their names. I can't talk about what they we really We know your BFF, Zahi Was. Yeah, well, no, I don't talk to Zahi. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to send yeah. some money over to talk to Zahi. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, there's good evidence that the Americas were settled long, long ago, a lot earlier. Yeah, um, so I was going to mention, though, there's that cave, which they're disputing now or debating over, but the Chiquahite in Mexico, which is uh, 30,000 years old, they found like 200 stone tools and uh, different strata. And But then you have the people that are skeptical saying, no, those are flakes from the cave that fell and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I saw a couple pictures of the tools. They look like tools to me, but I mean, what do yeah. I know? Well, there's this, the Cerruti site in, in California that came out just a couple years ago. Cerruti's pretty old. 133,000 yeah. BC, 133. Yeah. And Lewis B. Leakey, famous Lewis Leakey, back in the 70s and 80s, found a site near uh, Santa Barbara, and it dated to 250,000 years ago, and he staked his entire reputation on it being a human-occupied site. It was all human, he said. And he was so criticized at the time that he withdrew completely from public inter interaction. That's a true story also. So there's a lot 
So what do we do here? Uh, you're the perfect person to ask because we've talked about this many t- every time you're on. So when I started this journey, this knowledge quest, I was very much into the woo. Whatever sounded the most crazy to me but had some sort of connection to reality is what I jumped at. And now I find myself like you two and like some other people who are doing like real research but it's considered fringe you know, those are the people I look to. I can't look at more of these big dogs that are in the alternative stuff anymore because they're just, it's a lot of fluff, not a lot of actual. Um, so like, how do we navigate that? There's real mysteries out there. There's this fine line, but there's people that are just making TV shows and content. And then there's people that are actually passionate about it. I can tell you're passionate about it. I can tell PD's passionate about it. There's people that are just in, and it's cliche talking about money and shows and blah, blah, blah. But like, what do we do here? Because there's a lot of people pushing BS out there in these communities that are making people like you, like PD, like other people that we've had on the show who, again, do real research, you know, gives them kind of a bad name because some of those people are snake oil salesmen. Well, first of all, you got to just let it go. You got to make it irrelevant, not care about that and do what you're passionate, where your passion goes and do the best you can do. Uh, where I think it's going to go and where I'm, where I'm, what I'm working on right now, um, is taking what PD's doing, what he, his research and taking the next step, which actually is the woo. It is the woo. And so the question is, and I know we've, we've, we've actually talked about this specific thing. Yeah, but you guys are actually talking, you guys are talking about real tangible, like you can show me a spiral shell with the chemical analysis. Like the people I'm talking about don't have any of that, but people, they've got 10 million followers because they say insane, crazy shit that people want to hear. Well, I think that to me, the, the question that I'm working on is this. Okay, so they took hallucinogens And I know when people go to mound sites, they can have experiences. I've been writing about that. I'm writing these little short articles. uh, And those are all bits and pieces of of books uh, that are coming. They're not things that I've written before. It's like, what happens when you actually do a ritual? What's the point of it? What happens? What are the electromagnetic fields around mound sites? What's the effect of the geology and the stones? And then what in the world happens when you take like ayahuasca or when you're taking hallucinogens? what are you saying? Are they simply hallucinations that have that where the real world is simply being altered and you are seeing things that aren't there? Or is it actually opening you up to something else, to some other reality? And I'll give you what uh, just a very quick thing. I'm doing a, a, a conference in a week with Andrew Collins here. And at that conference, I'm going to say something that nobody in Edgar, uh, Edgar Casey's stream of, of influence have ever heard before. Because I'm into, I have been in the Casey organization for a long time, and this is a Casey oriented conference. So here's what I'm going to say Edgar Casey was not a psychic, the man was not a psychic. Uh, and it's a shame that that term was ever applied to him. What Edgar Casey was, was a combination. Well, he was a shaman. That's what he was. He was a shaman and a medicine person. And what shaman did is shaman went into psychic trances and they used substances to go and interact with the spiritual world, with the powers, whatever those powers are, and get information from them, information that could help individuals and could help the tribe. They sometimes 
would they're not predictions because Casey never made predictions. People keep talking about his prophecies and predictions. It isn't that way when you actually read it. What Edgar Casey said is if things don't change, here is what is likely to occur. And often he would say, you as an individual getting a reading, you need to be careful. You need to you should think about pulling your money out of the stock market, which he told several people right before the 1929 crash. That's how everybody says, oh, he predicted the, the stock market crash. Well, he told some people to get their money out because there was a disturbance. OK, well, Casey also did healing. He never did hands on healing. Uh, he did the same thing that medicine people do. Medicine people would often go into a trance and they would diagnose physical problems that individuals had, and they would then tell them to use herbal remedies. That is what Edgar Casey did. He would go into a trance and diagnose physical problems that people had or try to, and then he would recommend a remedy. That is what Native American medicine people did. And all his remedies had to do with eating, doing emetics, uh, eating a lot of apples, doing, you know, cleaning your body out. He talked about actually vomiting at times. Clean out your intestines, clean out your stomach, acidify your body. He talked uh, alkaline your alkalize your body. He talked about that kind of stuff all the yeah, time. Yeah, and actually if you read a lot of his papers, I mean, it's universal knowledge that we would know now, but back exactly. then they wouldn't have known a lot of the stuff that he was saying. Exactly. Casey, this guy Edgar Casey was not a stupid man, and he was very well read. People keep saying he was illiterate. He wasn't illiterate. He, he, Casey worked in a bookstore. He read so many books, it was unreal. He read newspapers. All that information was absorbed to him, and that's exactly what a shaman would have done in his world. A shaman would have grown up, and he would have learned all kinds of things uh, from his all his years of growing up. That would have been his education. And shaman were called. Edgar Casey had, they were called by spirit forces. Edgar Casey had two experiences where he met what's been interpreted as an angel. It was a being in a ball of light. That's what it was, a being in a ball of light. And the first interaction he had as a child at age 13, which is when many shamans are called and when uh, this transition period of a vision quest often took place, age 12 and 13 with Native Americans, this ball of light being told him that he would heal people, mainly children. That is what happened in it. And the second experience he had with the ball of light was the same being came to him and told him time to do it. He had to move. He had to leave the farm in Hopkinsville, near Hopkinsville, and move to town. That was the second and That's one. right. The same Hopkinsville as the Hopkinsville it, goblins. That's correct. So my, my point in this is, Shaman were called. They often had these experiences. They saw and interacted with little people. So did Edgar Casey, And that's what everybody misses in this. That's what people just, you know, they call him a psychic all the time, like he was a fortune teller. And he wasn't. He, he was totally different. He was the first sort of modern shaman medicine man combination. And I've pulled all these articles out of of scientific journals where they've tried to define what a shaman is. That's why I know when the term shaman was first, it was, it was uh, 1698 supposedly by, yeah, a guy in Siberia. Uh, so he, he had all the same attributes as the shaman. 
because they were called, they, they had visitations. There's loads of examples of them talking about visitations in childhood. They were told they were going to be healers and they were shown how to do it. And Casey went into these trances. He went out, he interacted with whatever that spiritual world is. So to me, the real question is, and this is where the woo goes, is it real or not? What are these people tapping? What are they tapping? That is the question to me. And that's what I find most interesting. All the nuts and bolts of it. This is nuts and bolts. These objects are nuts and bolts. Yeah, they're really interesting. And what they've led us to, like PD's work, looking at all this pottery, what it's led to is we understand what in the hell went in those pots. And then we know now what a lot of this stuff was used for. But it wasn't to dope up the society. Uh, people get are going to get the idea here that they sat around and they were like potheads smoking dope no, all day our, our, or being high all day. Some will. Some, no, some I was going to say our listeners are pretty well versed on psychedelics and cannabis and stuff. But they weren't. They used these at ritual times primarily. Now, it is true that the leaders, they had rituals all the time because they met just like we would have a city hall meet or a mayor uh, or a chief or in the, in the White House, in the war room of the White House. Uh, so that's where I think it's going. That, that to me is the most interesting thing. But the battle over when America was populated and all that, that's going to continue uh, well beyond my lifetime and yours too. It'll continue well beyond that. Now, so that that's it. That's all I got to say. Let let PD answer too. I, I'm yeah, curious no. What he said. Let's let's. No, I I got a response to. You know, when you say what are you tapping into, um, I've been using various entheogenic plants and substances. I mean, since I was 11 years old, that's when I started down this road. <laughs> and my overwhelming just intuition, my feeling throughout all those years, all of those experiences has always been that I'm, I'm not hallucinating. I'm not seeing something that isn't there. I'm seeing, sometimes I think about it like, you remember back in the 90s, you'd have cable, but you could sign up for other channels and the, the cable man would bring you a little adapter that you'd screw on between your cable box and the cord. And all of a sudden you get all these other channels that you couldn't get before, like Cinemax and HBO. I think about it like that. Like the channels are always being broadcasted, but something, something's, most of it's filtered out. And um, Aldous Huxley talked about that, how there was a funnel in the psyche that funnels out everything that's not pertinent to your survival in that moment. But you can widen that funnel with things like mescaline that allows more to come through, more to come in. Um, I think about it like what do you, that. What do you and, think about that, I, though? I was gonna, so to, to your point really quick, this is something I've mentioned many times, and I've had Andrew Galmore kind of go back and forth with me on it, but tryptamines versus tropane. So, like, tryptamines plays off our 5-HT2A receptors. Um, they're not biologically harmful. They do allow you to experience what you would think of as normal reality with some slight variation, whether it be flowing patterns and blah, 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 colors, whatever, um, versus a tropane, which you can be kind of like in an alternate 
realm completely or see something somebody that's not they're probably more akin to like us like being super drunk and having hallucinations or something like that um do you think that there is a difference between those compounds and their like connection to whatever this other realm is meaning that like maybe a tryptamine would allow you to see more tropane kind of like i don't know it just seems like it's more static or something i'd think about them as different almost like different dimensions you're tapping into you're not seeing more with the tryptamines. You're seeing something specific to the tryptamines. And, and I, I always was reluctant to articulate anything like that because it sounds so new agey and you have to have faith in a play. But it wasn't until I started. No, those people can't even touch this conversation. People, taking these substances with other people and having shared hallucinations. Now, the concept of what's called folie adieu, uh, it, it, it's a, a French uh, psychology term for a madness shared by two, or you can have folie à trois, or you know, however many are involved. That's an old concept, but just because we have a word for it doesn't mean it, ex- it explains what's happening. And I've had so many experiences with other persons on mushrooms, on LSD, on ayahuasca, where we're observing and discussing the same visuals. I've had experiences where legitimate telepathy was like frequency sync, I call it. Yeah. And it's so unexplainable if we're not looking at something that's real. Even if it's simply that we're looking into the projections of our own unconscious and we're able to visualize that as a field outside of ourselves, that still is pretty heavy. You know, what do, like, what do we do with that? But it, it really, my intuition is that, and I might be wrong, but I really do feel like we're, we're tapping into, observing, participating with things that are always happening around us. But that, like Huxley said, our, our our internal funnel filters that out because it has nothing to do with our survival in this moment. But sometimes you need a trip to the underworld to bring back. The Greeks would do would do this for, to bring back laws or um, like Par- Parmenides. Greg and I were talking about a while ago, and I sent him a quote from Parmenides today. But he's the father of logic. He introduced logic to Western philosophy. And he claims to have gotten it by what they call incubation, laying down still for sometimes days at a time in a dark space and traveling to the underworld where he met a goddess who taught him this. And he brings it back and it becomes the the law that inaugurates a new era of mankind. Um, uh, Epimenides is another ancient pre-Socratic Greek philosopher who would leave his body, go into the underworld and come back with new laws for people. Um, yeah, I love to speculate. Right, right along the yeah. side to this, what he's talking about, bringing back techniques for healing, bringing back boons of wisdom, even bringing back the souls of people, dead people and live people. You know, if you, if you had, if you were suffering from what we would call depression, they would see that as one of your multiple souls having gotten gotten away and is already kind of waiting on you in the land of the dead. And the shaman has to go recover it and bring it back. That sounds insane to us. And, and, and even more insane is the notion that you could get laws that would govern an entire group of people from something like this. 
but I truly believe that's what's going on. And there, there, there have been innovations in the scientific world from this philosophy, the philosophical world. Parmenides is a good example. Um, earlier, we were talking about Casey. Uh, Greg was talking about Edgar Casey. Wasn't there a case where he said that they needed a screw um, put in their bone to put their bone, their broken bones back together? And that was the first time a screw had been used in, in medicine. Is that true? Wow, that, I've never heard of that. I wouldn't doubt it a bit. Uh, there are lots of things where Casey. I've heard that the too. First person to say something, but that's one that I have not heard. He I read did. that. And, okay, and it's, it's probably that would, true. I'm supposed to be a Casey time. expert, but my God, there's fifteen thousand readings that are written down. <laughs> I know. I, know. And, uh, I have. I will. I. You're right. Uh, but Casey, Casey had a lot of things like that where he was correct in the healing stuff and a lot of very bizarre things that we, we wouldn't have enough time to touch any of it. I, there is something I want to say, and that is, I believe it's all electromagnetic. I've said it before here and I've written that over and over. I think that hallucinogens change. We're, we're antenna. We are biological antenna and we interact with an, the electromagnetic fields around us all the time. Every human has an electromagnetic field. The earth has one. Uh, every object around you is reflecting electromagnetic energy and we interact with it. Uh, and I think yeah, that, that, that is what story of your buddy um, uh, from your origins of the gods book, your buddy that was sitting in your chair. Yes. Uh, yeah. You can the go, white Eagle, the, yeah, the you, native American, yeah, the Cheyenne uh, arrow priest. He wasn't a shaman. He was an arrow priest, which is similar to a shaman. Yeah, you can listen to our episode Origin of the Gods for that story, Doctor. It's a pretty good story um, regarding what we're talking about. But uh, PD, so, um, you know, we were talking about the mysteries and stuff like that. Here's this quote from Plato from the Phaedo uh, dialogue, which is, Our mysteries had a very real meaning. He that has been purified and initiated shall dwell with the gods. Now, this is assumed that this is, uh, this comes from his experience uh, from the Eleusinian Mysteries. Somebody else mentioned the Eleusinian Mysteries in the comments. So I thought I'd bring it up. Um, I've speculated this before. I told you this, I think, PD. Like, I could totally see from the Eleusinian Mysteries, like, um, Euclid, you know, seeing geometrical patterns and then implementing them into real life. I could see Plato. There's the Plutonian cave right there, right at Eleusis. He could have had this experience, walked over to the cave and came up with the allegory of the cave. Um, Parmenides, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, all these guys, Heraclitus, like who knows how many of them actually participated, but they come up with these very interesting ways to look at the um, world and even the universe. They were speculating about the universe, uh, some of them at that point. So um, do you have any thoughts? Like, do you think that those are specifically tied to entheogens from the Eleusinian Mysteries? Or do you think those Absolutely. dudes were? Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Right, right here in the quote, you see, it says purified and initiated. That refers to the two stages of the initiation. Here in the West, we think initiation means a beginning, initial, the initial stages of something. But the words the Greek used are catharsis for purification, which is literally the purge, the purging part, and then initiation. What we translate as initiate is their word telete, which actually means perfection. It's not a beginning, but an end. And that, that same terminology was adopted by the early Christian church, the Orthodox Christians. And they had what we would call a three degree system, very similar to masonry and these other initiatory orders where the first stage of, of 
participation is baptism. That's the purgation, the, the catharsis part. The second stage is the initiation, the telete, the perfection. This is done by anointing, the chrismation, where they put an oil on you. Now, if you look at the earliest example we have of what the early Christians were doing was from a philosopher named Celsus. And Celsus is describing the Christian's secret initiatory practices. And after they're baptized, which during this baptism, they have to place a plant in their mouth that nobody knows what this plant is, but the same plant shows up in Pliny the Elder when he says that it's used in necromancy rituals and it was used once to call the spirit of Homer out of the underworld. So it's d directly associated with visionary stuff, underworld imagery. Um, but then following this, they're anointed with something they call the white unguent of the tree of life. And this causes them to leave their body and travel upwards through the seven levels of the heavens. Now, Origen, the famous early Orthodox Christian uh, church father, he rebutted this and he wrote this book, an eight, I think an eight volume rebuttal. But he didn't rebut this. He didn't say, no, we don't do that. What he really complained about was that Celsus got their levels of heavens out of order. So his beef was that it, you, you've mixed our stuff up, not that you're accusing us of using this ointment that causes us to leave our body. Those are the same two stages, purified and initiated, um, catharsis and telete, purgation followed by the perfection, which is, is taking you from zero to a hundred using some substance. Interesting. Um, so the other aspect of this is, um, so I was holding a uh, Twitter space or X space, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this was a while ago. This was probably like a year ago. And it was actually on UFOs, believe, believe it or not. Um, there was a woman from Greece who, I don't know how we got talking about it, but we started talking about the Eleusinian Mysteries. And I asked her, I'm like, is it common knowledge that they had like ergot or some psychoactive compound in the Kekion? And uh, she said that she thought it was mushrooms. And she said, the reason why I think this is because the ancient word for one grape uh, is the same as mushroom or something along mm. those lines. So I don't know if that's true, but maybe we can, you know, collaborate and follow up on that and see if there's anything to it. Carl Ruck has a book he wrote, you know, he's most famous for his road to Eleusis where they put forth the um, ergotized barley theory, but he's got another book called sacred mushrooms of the goddess um, where he's exploring all of the potential references to mushrooms in an Eleusinian context. And uh, he does a great job. Ruck always does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, now, and I've been critical of Marescu and because of his, he doesn't ever use psychedelics and he wrote a whole book on it and everything, but there's a lot of good information in there. So I recommend the immortality key, at least people check it out because there is actual archeological evidence in there and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and with all these people, you know, like we have had Chris Bennett on, I think he's an excellent cannabis scholar and, uh, you know, I think with Soma and all that stuff, look, there's people doing real research out there that's not necessarily within academia, but is very, very credible where they, when they bring it to academia, they're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like this is impressive. So, um, these well, are the conversations. Academics have, they work on grants, right? You know, so they can only write about and research what they're being paid to write about and research on. Well, so they're, they're also they getting a bad name. I will. 
I do have to vouch for partly because when I started the show, I knew nothing about archaeology, but I was sure that the pyramids had some weirder, um, you know, origin. Now, having look at, looked at the archaeological record, I understand their frustration. There is a lot of stuff that is easily explainable through logic and reason and the stuff that they put out. However, most people going up against them are saying, you know, this rhetoric or that rhetoric from Graham Hancock or, or whatever that, you know, they're the, the cabal or the, you know, academia or whatever. I don't think, I think that that's, if anything, just a bad pattern or um, system like there's flaws within that system as opposed to there being anything malignant. Um, I would say though, most people do your research, look at the mainstream. Don't just say, Oh, they couldn't have done this using whatever. Have you looked at all the methods? Because there's a lot of impressive research out there again. And, and some people are doing mainstream research that aren't even in academia that are doing cool stuff too. So you have to really look at everything. If you want to fight with people online, I suggest you do your homework. I suggest you look at the archeological record. I suggest you look at the fringe stuff. So if you're an archeologist, know what the fringe people are talking about. If you're a fringe person, know what the archaeologist or the scientist or whoever is talking about. That's the only way to knowledge and truth, and I can't stress that enough. And if you think that you can watch one YouTube video or read one book and know everything, that's not going to happen. Knowledge is hard. Knowledge is hard. I agree. So I don't know if there's anything else you either of you wanted to touch on here before, but we can start to wrap it up here in a minute if you would like. I don't know if either of you. I'm ready. Okay. Um, well, this has been a true treat for me. Uh, I love both of you. You're awesome. Dr. Greg's books are awesome. I love them. Um, you know, PD's works. Awesome. Uh, love his research as well. Um, I think that, uh, again, you have to really take, um, you have to do your homework is what it comes down to. There's stuff, you know, if you want to have fun with this, that's cool. But I, again, I see a lot of anger, um, and people fighting and stuff like that. And it's just like, I see a lot of stuff that I know to not be true because I've put in the time and I'm not expecting everybody out there put in the time. But again, I think you get, you, you run dangerously close to Dunning Kruger when you start to do that. So, um, Let's keep it on the up and up, people. Come on. Love, light, peace. If you don't know about something, try and learn something. That's the other thing. Instead of pretending like you know it, how about you learn about it from somebody? So, all right. Enough pontificating on my end, but uh, <laughs> I just ruined an amazing show, folks. Yeah, I did. No, that. you didn't. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. That's that's yeah. exactly. Pe I, I'm, I'm for people. I say this all the time to people. You're absolutely entitled to your beliefs. If you want to believe the pyramid is 100,000 years old, that's fine. If you want to believe it was built by aliens, that's fine. Um, I love I, John it, Anthony West. He thought the Sphinx was potentially 35,000 years old. I, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, whatever. I, but uh, th again, to your point, you can like somebody and not agree with what they're saying. Yeah, uh, but there's no use arguing. I don't, people, people tell me things all the time on uh, Twitter. You know, I post mound stuff all the time on Twitter. They will make statements and I just, I don't reply. There's no use saying you're wrong or I disagree with it. I don't do that. People are entitled to believe what they want. I'm simply throwing out the information. They can get what they want out of it. Um, and I think, I think that's fine. We're in a world today where if somebody disagrees, we get angry. We, we shouldn't. People are entitled to believe what they want to believe as long as you don't hurt others. That's my belief anyway. 
that's how I live. So I just see the good show, right? No, 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 that's that's the old that's the only way to live, bro. SPD's turn. No, it was so it it was so profound that I couldn't say anything. My mute button was on. Go ahead, PD. That's I I don't have anything. I I totally agree. You're right. Everything good begins with with education. Um, And there's it's hard to know what to read because there's so much out there that's just noise, you know. But uh, the best place to start the way I, I do it is I go back to the early stuff and work my way up. Um, and then you get a good picture of how the ideas change, the morphology and the topology of that territory. You see where ideas come in and, um, no, that's spot on, bro. That's what you should be doing. It's perfect. Again, I have my new, philosophy is to learn something new every day and uh, and implement that into my philosophy so it's always changing i'm never going to die on a hill because i'm always learning something new and i think if you don't have to do it that way you could you know have your own pet theory or whatever but i think that you have to be open to new data and ideas so um pd you're spot on dr greg you're spot on i think we all we all really spot on we all really learned something here tonight, and I really love that about this show. Uh, all the amazing comments, shout out to Screen Name, shout out to Sam, shout out to Julie, shout out to MPV. Uh, there's so many awesome people in the comments. Dougal was in here earlier. Uh, uh, who else do we have here? We got Chasing Mound Builders on here. <laughs> Um, yeah, so thank you so much for everybody that participated, asked questions, interacted. Screen name had some real zingers comedy wise. So, uh, yeah, just so please go check out Dr. Greg's books. I have the links to all of his books down below. I highly recommend them, even his early stuff. Uh, you know, you'd think some of the stuff's outdated, some of it's more relevant than ever. The archetype experience on UFOs and gray aliens and stuff like that. Um, you know, that stuff worth looking into and then on pd's end read alchemically stoned and then from there check out uh, angels and vermilion and he's got a new one coming out too where he's going to probably talk about his missa waska um hypothesis i've got, two. I've got the, the theurgy book oh yeah that's right december 5th and it'll probably be um what's the name summer. of that one what's the theurgy one named theurgy theory and practice mysteries of the ascent to the divine and it's mm. looking at the same model that that Greg talks about in his path of souls book. Um, but it's taking place in Greece and it's, it's, it's identical with the wow. entry points in the constellations and getting on the Milky way. And it's uncanny. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy with it. it it's, it, it explores theurgy for the first time in, in a, a practical way, which you don't see in any of the other published books on the subject. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that. Looking forward to both of them and looking forward to Dr. Greg's next work too. I think you should be doing, I think you should be doing mound. I think you should be taking people on mound trips, by the way, Dr. Greg. Uh, it's, we've had so many requests, uh, do it, bro. Just do it. We're considering it. It just, I've only got so much time left, uh, and so much energy left. So I got to figure out where I'm best. Fast forward a year from now, he's performing shamanic uh, ritual, black uh, drink rituals uh, at Cahokia. No, no drink. I, I would say that that is a liability. Uh, that's a massive quicksand of liability right there. All that is. But yeah. 
Uh, I'm, I've just got to stay on the little track I'm on. I've got a lot of projects uh, juggling. I'm like a juggler, uh, juggling all kinds of things. But I've always done that, and uh, I just need to keep doing it. So I don't know. We'll see. Awesome, man. Well, I look forward to it. Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity. Of Thank course. You. No problem. Um, again, check out both their works. Links down below. If you want to support Mind Escape, the best way to do it is to click the Linktree link down below. We've got a merch store. We've got Patreon. Both of these fine gentlemen have episodes on our Patreon that are exclusive. We have an extended version of our documentary, As Within, So Without, from UFOs to DMT. Both of these gentlemen are in that as well. Um, we have a free version of that as well on our YouTube if you're interested. And, uh, yeah, if you want to leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, we do a video podcast uh, on Spotify. And if you're listening to this, again, there was slideshows and videos throughout this uh, that were correlated with what we were talking about. And uh, thank you so much to both of you again. I'm going to play the trailer for our documentary on the way out. And uh, we will have both of these gentlemen on in the future. And maybe even again. This was fun. I, I love this. Until the next time. All right. All right. Love everybody. Stay safe out there. Right. Peace. I don't have to believe something's here. There's no question about that. They are not just from this planet, but based on the characteristics they're most often described having, that they're simply us from the future. It was um, the biggest aircraft I've ever seen in my entire life. It was semi-translucent, it seemed. We see four orange orbs flying one after another, basically in formation. Um, I think in a way, you know, you could call a UFO a flying dream. Out of the cornfield, that seven foot tall, gray, menacing, communion looking alien or whatever you want to call it. Because it can be multitude of things, of deities, of godlike creatures, of aliens. The reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more complex. As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.